You're good. All right. We are thankful uh, you're here. Uh, Josh is going to take us to Second um, Corinthians three eighteen. If you uh, want to turn there for starters, hopefully it'll be a number of places um, after that. Let me pray for us. So excited about um, so many things today and certainly want to always go about this um, with, a, with a huge humility, knowing that there are so many things in Scripture that we need to learn and grow in yet. And so um, uh, let's pray for that as we start. Father, what a, a great joy to um, study your word and look to understand it better. And Father, I thank you that faith comes from hearing and hearing from your word. I thank you that you sanctify us you, um, by your truth and your word is truth. We're so grateful that you've given us all we need for life and godliness. Uh, we're thankful that um, you have given us uh, and, and sacrificed the Lord Jesus. And now we know that along with him you'll graciously give us all things. All of these great and precious promises are uh, overwhelming and uh, so um, incredible for us to think about. So I pray that we would um, consider Christ and that we would um, see his glory and look to um, throw out idols that are uh, uh, possibly somewhat dominant in our life uh, and instead turn uh, to the Lord Jesus uh, repent from sin, and Lord, that you would use us um, to help others do the same um, for your glory. Thanks so much for uh, each person that would invest this time. I know there's other things they could do. Um, I pray that you'd reward them for their faithfulness, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Josh, start us off. All right. So if you have your Bible there at 2 Corinthians 3.18... I want to hit, hit, come back to an idea I mentioned last week about um, laboring to get clear and high views of the gospel and trying to have a, a clear understanding of who Christ is, what he has done, and then maybe talk through why that's important in counseling, some, some implications for counseling. So uh, I sort of just defined that, and, and today I want to tr- at least attempt to describe it a little bit more. And let's go ahead and just read 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so in counseling, I think this idea of of Painting Christ in, in vivid and real colors to the eye of the mind is immensely critical. And understanding who he is and what he has done is, is vital. Because here in the text we see that when we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so we see here change happens by degree. You know, we're not magically transformed overnight. You know, it happens by degree, one degree, degree of glory to another. But we have to behold the glory of the Lord. To, and to behold, we have to consider, we have to take in, we have to, to ponder and to think over uh, the glory of the Lord. And so if I were to just pause and ask you guys, what 
are some passages or texts or scenes from the Gospels, and I want to ask you, Jerry, that, that for you, it's glory coming out of the page, or it just seems to shout uh, the glory of Christ. What would, where would your mind go to? What would you think? Well, could you start with the ones you had mentioned when we talked earlier? Because I, I th- think these are, are so key. But man, I imagine there are dozens through the gospel where we just think about it. And to me, when Josh asked this, I was convicted. I think, I don't think I think often enough about that. You know, just focus on Jesus. Think about what he's done in the gospel and, and trust the promise of this verse. What, which ones were you mentioned? Because yeah. I love them. So I think, I mean, we've got such uh, rich source material in the four Gospels. You know, Jesus is on the move, healing people, uh, calming storms at sea, feeding 5,000, raising Lazarus, you know, glory everywhere in the Gospels. I think for me personally, I think about the Gospel of John and the last... Uh, really from chapter 13 on is just this extended evening almost, all the way up to Pilate. And I think through some of those scenes with Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, and he washes their feet, and you know he knows Judas is going to betray him in just a few short hours, and he still goes through and washes Judas' mm-hmm. feet. We, we see his, his love for his disciples. Um, and you, fa- you, you continue on in that scene, and Jesus is led out to the to the Mount of Olives and the, those band of soldiers come to arrest him. And he, at one word, they all fall down at mm. just one word. Uh, a little bit later on, he's flogged. Uh, he goes before Pilate and ends up uh, stretched across a, 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 a beam with, with his wrists driven through with, with stakes. And in that scene, he's absorbing the wrath of God on the cross for, for our sin. And I think thinking through those, and even in counseling settings, formal and informal, uh, if you can, you know, maybe you hear somebody say something, you say, that, that reminds me of this, of this scene where Christ uh, does this thing or that thing, and he's got control over the physical world. He's got control over the supernatural world, over demons, over these things. He's got control over death itself. Over, he's able to raise Lazarus from the tomb, and he has power to change. Certainly, he can change our life circumstances, and he can um, give us great hope and uh, help in the situations that we're facing. If, if he's doing those things, he's still on the move today, doing things and, and working for, for our good and his glory. Yeah, no, I love that. I think about um, one of my favorites is Remember when the disciples are trying to shoo away the children and Jesus says, no, let, you know, let them come to me. The little guys come play up in the, in the gym. Um, they play PE up there and you get to see them and they come give you a big old hug or something. And, you know, it's just Jesus' heart for, um, I remember in Bible college, for the least, the lonely, and the lost. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's humbling the way he... Um, we, I, I think MacArthur says it was possibly while they were nailing him to the cross where the cross would be um, laid flat and they were nailing him where he said that first thing from the cro- cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you just, you just think about that, that immense love for um, people that are being um, completely cruel to him. And so you're right, Josh, there's so many of those things that reminded me when you're talking about that transformation that we're looking in us to to um, to happen in us and in others. Uh, Romans twelve one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's what we want in our own lives. That's what we want to help others to do. And then it says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so that's what I hear you say from 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Oh boy, Scott, we need you. You could give us a, uh, a lot of good insights on there too, is to have our minds transformed, renewed. Um, and we do that through the word of God. That's what renews our minds. That's what we have to go back to. So, um, so I love your startness there. That just seems so important. And I think I've underestimated how important that's been in my life. Yeah, I think the, the, the idea is that we will become like what we worship. And, and G.K. Mm-hmm. Beale wrote a whole book on this and um, went into how idols make us deaf, blind, and mute. But when we worship Christ, uh, when we behold him and consider him and ponder who he is and what, is done, what he has done, we will become more Christ-like. And that is the goal for biblical counseling. And You were quoting Mark. You worship your way into sin and you worship your way back out. Is that? That's right. I think Mark said that a, a couple weeks back in a sermon. That, and that's a, the same idea trying to get out here. And I think it's clear from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Yeah. Good. So uh, a, a couple more things. Why is this important to, uh, to consider, to know Christ, to behold him? And we will become like what we behold. And um, you know, I think you see this a lot of times with children. You know, they they want to dress up like Batman. They want to they want to become the the famous superhero. What they behold and esteem highly, they will become like. And so we want to have those clear and high views of the gospel and of Christ, and and let that um, encourage or increase our pursuit of sanctification and, and Christ likeness. So. Let me give you one more reason, though, um, and this comes from Second Peter one. Tuesday morning study, little plug, right? That's right. Second Peter one. Peter goes through uh, a list of virtues here. Uh, I'll I'll start here in verse 5. Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And hear this part. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. So Peter's saying if we lack any of these virtues, we're nearsighted and blind, and we've forgotten we've been cleansed from former sins. And so that's the second reason why we have to go back to the gospel in counseling is uh, so we don't become nearsighted or blind and, and uh, lack these qualities, these virtues that we want to grow in as Christians. So that was just a quick thing uh, there to start on, on the importance of getting clear and high views of the gospel and of the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Any other thoughts on that, Jerry? That's great. All right. So 
a, a little bit of time today we'll spend uh, in the in theory a little bit of co- contrast with other counseling theories and what makes biblical counseling unique and if you're thinking about the the world of biblical counseling this is a a description that I I thought was helpful you can think about it like this we we've been talking about mainly the upstream world, the stuff that takes place kind of upstream of, of counseling conversations. Uh, this would be the theory world, you know, the, the things that define who is man, who is God, uh, what is the goal of counseling, these types of things that maybe wouldn't come out in, in a conversation. Those would be more of the midstream and downstream level things, like how do you actually fight anxiety? What are, what's the strategies for doing that? How do you actually go about and treat anxiety or, or panic attacks or those kinds of things? Um, and we really haven't delved as much into that because we wanted to establish the, the upstream theoretical sort of foundation, the doctrinal and theological foundations for what counseling is and why we do it. And we'll continue to do that some today, but I'd, I would hate for you to come to the class and think, man, these guys never really even talked about what's going on with depression or with anxiety or, or you know, what have you, the whole gamut of counseling-related issues. And we also think those are important, but we want to really lay this, this strong theological foundation uh, from the jump. Any, any thoughts on that, Jerry? Probably if we get... See, I like that you're starting here, because if we get this wrong then we're just gonna we're wrong from the get-go and and we're probably gonna be trying to treat the symptom rather than the real problem is I that think, i think that's the danger there yeah and i definitely think that is the danger uh it can be so um and maybe in in the future we'll address more of those just sort of the common heavy hitters that you see or hear about on a daily basis with people you work with or what have you so um I want to talk about the DSM, something we haven't talked about yet, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. You Just, know what that thing reminded me? Josh didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought when you were telling me about it or I was looking at it, I thought that's about as interesting as that thing the king was reading in Daniel. The uh, annuals, the what, Scott, what was the memorable deeds, whatever that, that what was it called? The Book of Memorable Deeds, that's what this thing sounds like. You want to read this when you're getting really bored. Yeah, I mean, very, an in-depth manual for sure, but I'm just curious, maybe show of hands, who's ever even heard of this Diagnostic and Statistical Manual? Okay, so. Oh, no. Half the group. I'm sorry, I'm the only one not reading that thing. (laughs) I did not know it was popular. So, you guys know it's, it's, it's the... Wikipedia says it's the handbook used by healthcare professionals as the authoritative guide for diagnosing mental disorders. I feel bad. Oh, don't feel bad, Jerry. It's it's all good. It's uh, updated. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'll get the next edition. Yeah, five. They're, they're working on edition six right now, I believe. So, but it it came on the scene in the in 1950. Uh, it, the street level term is it's kind of the Bible of psychiatry. And uh, if we're going to contrast, we have to at least engage with the DSM on some level. So uh, it is in its fifth edition, and it's really how healthcare professionals are diagnosing various mental illnesses and disorders, and has really been growing in size since 1952. Um, you know, new diagnoses and disorders added with each edition, and then some are removed. And I think it, it came on 
or, you know, in the 50s as, as a way to sort of legitimize and medicalize or, or give a more objective, descriptive uh, background for, you know, increased respectability for psychiatry as a discipline. Um, and it's really undergone a, a lot of changes, and, and it certainly didn't just get here overnight. And if you, you know, if you guys have read it, you'll see it's a very well-researched people far smarter than I am writing and spending their whole careers developing these diagnoses. It's, it's very, um, you know, very descriptive. You could say very heavy scientific, um, you know, studies that are informing this thing. But I want to just maybe go over a few concerns that we would have with it just from a biblical worldview and then talk about how even we might engage somebody who's who has a mental disorder, or um, you know how not to how, how to I think biblically and respectfully talk to people w- about this type of thing. So this is from the DSM itself. This is maybe concern number one. Uh, the DSM itself says there's no practical, professional, or scientific consensus as to the basis of a definition of mental illness. The DSM says this manual provides a classification of mental disorders. It must be admitted that no definition adequately specifies precise boundaries for the concept of mental disorder. So that would be concern number one. The second one, Jerry, I'd love to hear from you on this one, is the DSM is trying to say what is normal and what is abnormal for human behavior. And uh, we, we're, we have the observations of many secular professionals and trying to determine what is abnormal and what is not abnormal. And you had in the third edition, which I think was 1980, um, up until that edition, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. And then in the third edition, it was removed, um, you know, just, what was that, 44 years ago. And so we have... Uh, this thing is is heavily influenced by our culture, what our culture deems normal and abnormal, and so we have to have to be aware of that. Um, any thoughts on that, Jerry? What you know, the normal versus abnormal being defined by secular professionals and culturally influenced? Yeah, certainly you would say if we're going to get to the truth of what's normal or abnormal, you know, we have to go to scripture. That's the only place we're really going to find what's true. Uh, we've talked about. First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtake you, overtaken you um, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so, oh, you know what? It might be worth turning to, if you would, turn to Romans six to eight. What's normal in sanctification? If we're talking about um, trying to help, trying to counsel. Um, another believer, what they need to understand is, um, and uh, I was thankful Josh posted uh, um, that little, the number of verses on the indwelling sin. We know that there's continually a battle with that. But what else do we know from chapter six? If we just do a real quick little survey here about sanctification, Romans four and five is about justification, how we're justified. And we have been declared righteous, and now that we have peace, um, an objective peace that ushers in a subjective peace as well, but we have an objective peace with Christ. But if you look at chapter 6, let's say verse uh, uh, maybe 7, for one has died, 
um, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So that is an objective truth. That's what's true. We have been positionally set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death is no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin. Why? Because we are. So consider who you are and then become like that and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what do we do then? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make um, you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments uh, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And so what can we say here? We can say positionally, we are free from sin. That's the message of um, chapter six. We are uh, no longer, we're dead to sin, alive in Christ. Used to be dead in our sins, now we're dead to sin. In chapter seven, however, if you go over a page, we certainly see that our indwelling sin is still gonna give us a battle. And you remember that Paul uh, says it well here, where I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. So there is the continual battle that he um, reminds us of in chapter 7. I love verse 24, though, 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve the law of sin. So you see there's still going to be this battle. So Josh, when you're talking about normal, it seems to me the believer is free from sin positionally, but practically there's still a battle in there. And, and that's why Romans 8 is so important, I think, just in the sanctification that we remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that sometimes we feel condemned, right? Our past sin can make us feel condemned, and we need to know that. There's 38 more verses in that give us a commentary on that in Romans 8. One promise after another to believe. So we trade in the lies um, that are constantly being Satan's throwing them at us. Our own heart can throw lies at us. The world's throwing them at us, and we bombard those lies with the truth. And so I guess what when you're talking normal, Josh, I'm thinking, man, the, the normal Christian life is full of trials. In this world, you will have troubles, Jesus says, John 16, 33. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So if we're just trying to escape, and sometimes that seems like that can happen in counseling, we're just trying to get rid of the feeling bad or right to fight the, the, um, the symptoms of whatever's going on underneath, God's grace is sufficient. He didn't take Paul's problem away from him, did he? He just gave his more grace. And so I don't think we want to ever just say the, uh, the whole issue is to just get rid of the pain. God uses those trials. He uses the hard times. But what can we know? We know that we can um, trust him through the suffering. And that that suffering produces perseverance, and that produces character, and that produces hope. 
and that makes us more mature and complete in Christ. And so we walk through that in a different way than the unbeliever. That's what I would be concerned about is that we don't try to just get uh, away from the um, the pain and the trials, but instead see that God sovereignly has given us those trials um, perfectly for our good and for His glory. That's good, Jerry. Just keep keep going. Take us no, on no, with no. That. that. I'm, but how, how thankful can we be that that's the case? And I don't know, Josh. In counseling, sometimes is it just trying to like feel better? Oftentimes, I'm afraid it is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, let me just make this one last point on the DSM. If there's, if if secular non-Christian people are setting the terms for what is normal the, the, in the Bible of psychiatry, and it's constantly changing and culturally influenced, we can ask what what will be in there in 30 years or 60 years, you know, and and is it going to be a mental disorder to be a Christian even? I mean, you can. I don't think that's a far-fetched question. So, hmm. we need Scripture to sort of set the terms for for how we're thinking through this type of thing and exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So I may put some of this in the group. I'm going to skip a, f- a few of these, a few of these things on other concerns with the DSM, but, but I want to say this, when we uh, have a biblical interpretation of a problem and when we rightly label something that's clearly sin in scripture, it is very hope giving uh, as opposed to saying, uh, you know, this is a disorder that you have to just seek treatment for or cope with for the rest of your life, because let's just say we, we label something that is sinful and actually label it sinful, then we can talk through repentance. Then we can talk through the solution to that sinful um, addiction or, or what, whatever it is, and actually point people to hope and to change through Christ and the Holy Spirit working within. So we want to interpret problems uh, accurately and biblically. And we would also, on the other side, we wouldn't want to make a mistake and say, you know, you're responsible for this when it's something they're not responsible for. So could you give us an example? Like anxiety is coming to my mind, right? Or or it could be that sometimes in counseling, um, like you are diagnosed with anxiety, where Jesus tells us three times in Matthew 6, don't be anxious. So we realize that, that it's a sin issue, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and in that passage, there, not only does Jesus say unbelief is a root cause for anxiety, we're not believing God, but he gives us reasons to trust God. He cares for yeah. the birds. He clothes the lilies of the field. How much, how much are you more value than they? He will take care of our needs. And so there is, there is a it's right kind freeing. of, it's, yeah. it's very free. There's a right kind of anxiety and a, and a righteous f- concern for things, but it can become sinful when we let it dominate and uh, take us away from the responsibilities God has given for us to do. So yeah, I think that's a, a great example um, on that sort of a right, re-int- right interpretation of a problem as you know, sin versus disorder. If anybody's in the education world, you're, you'll be familiar with oppositional defiant disorder. And um, I've probably heard that one before when, when there's, it's, it's in the classes of conduct disorders, but we would say that is, you know, sinful when, when a child is hitting parents or teachers or lashing out with violence and aggression in speech. Um, 
we wouldn't say that's caused by a disorder. Uh, we would say that's a sinful behavior, um, you know, and that's where we have a biblical interpretation for, for something we see in the DSM. Um, so we don't want to allow a psychiatric diagnosis to normalize a, what the Bible would call a sinful behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're curious on that, I'd love to talk more, but I'm going to just move on a little bit and try to really get down into um, a, a little bit more of a practical level. Um, so let's just take anger, for example. We, we were talking about this, Jerry. If you, you said you were angry, some of the symptoms that would come with that would be maybe a red face, maybe you have a scowl on your face or harmful words. Uh, you know, you, you can kind of feel your blood boiling a little bit. And if you were to ask a person who's angry, why are you angry? And they said, I'm angry because I have a red face. You know, it's not exactly a, a explanation. Anger is, would be the label that we give to describe the set of symptoms that somebody's feeling. And so s- let's now take that same example and apply it to something like depression. And, and if you ask somebody why they're depressed and, and they say they have you know, feelings of sadness, tearfulness, loss of hope and emptiness, a loss of pleasure, you know, they're restless or have feelings of worthlessness or guilt. If you say, why are you depressed? And they gave you the symptoms. It's just a label to describe symptoms. It's not answering the why of, of why they are depressed. You're, you're, it's a descriptive category. And so um, as counselors, I think we have the privilege to kind of go beneath the hood and figure out what's going on in a person's life to potentially cause this. And maybe there's some, some genetic influences or some, some other influences, but there can also be a lot of influences from our thinking, our beliefs, wrong beliefs or wrong thoughts or a hope that we have that's not realized or uh, we're depressed because we're not getting something that we want to get. Um, and so we, we can kind of go beneath the hood and try to explore the why questions on a, on a deeper level for what is a person's sort of operational belief systems about life. Why, why do they love what they love and experience the emotions that they're experiencing? And what's safe to say, Josh, right, is that underneath the hood, there's always going to be some sin issues to, uh, to work on or to, um, for the Lord to sanctify out of us, no matter how long we've been believers. There's so many things that need to grow in, and, and those are things that might cause, I was looking at that, um, the James one part, when you were talking about uh, anger, there again, uh, James says, um, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So once again, God's word will do surgery on that anger so it wouldn't help somebody to just give a treatment. We're look, we have the cure. I think that's what's really exciting is the Bible can cure these, these things and we won't be without the presence of sin until heaven. Right. But the power of sin has lost its uh, Lester, because of the work of the Lord Jesus. Right. Well said. So, um, let me maybe just try and summarize a few things. And, and I was really helped by a, a biblical counselor who's also a medical physician, a, a practicing doctor. And he said 
this about sort of the, the labels. He said, giving a summary label to a set of symptoms for an issue like depression or any mental disorder can give the appearance of a precise explanation, but what kind of explanation is given? We're, we're left with a, with a label we really should explore more. He says the limitation of psychiatric diagnoses is that there are descriptions, many times helpful descriptions of human thought, emotion, or behavior, but do not adequately explain why the person has these experiences. And so when you think about the DSM and maybe you interact with people in your family or workplace, um, the, the, the DSM descriptions are very helpful. And I, I like to go, especially if it's something I'm not familiar with that I'm counseling, just to see what the manual says because it's incredibly well-researched. But I, it's more useful not as the prescriptive but descriptive. So we can see it as very useful as a descriptive thing but not prescriptive. But also we want to engage with the person and see what's their take on a disorder that they have. How are they, you know, how was how do they understand how it was diagnosed or did they go into a doctor's office and leave with no understanding of why they have generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and so... <clears throat> We want to deal, deal with the person and, and explore what their beliefs are, what their desires are, what their understanding of this is. you have anything else you want to add on that, Jerry? Well, I think that you laid it out a couple of weeks ago then that, um, that they can be around people that love them. I think one thing that hit me this week was that as we love each other well, the one another's, again, that we can have with each other that we would be, you would want to, I feel like if it was me that I was had that struggle, if you're just seeing someone uh, kind of once a week, like my friend I was telling you about, that has a standing uh, um, counseling appointment, then you're missing out on the real love. Somebody that's going to pray for you. Somebody that's going to, to love you. And the Holy Spirit's going to use that person and you're going to be able to study God's word together and and work on these things together and it just seems like we have such a biblical counseling has such an uh um a an advantage in that in that it's using God's word it's using the Holy Spirit who will continue to sanctify and the church can come alongside and and pray and um God uses people so that's, I guess, the reason for this class again, is that we would feel the, uh, the excitement, the burden maybe, the opportunity that we have to, to counsel one another and believe that we are counselors, um, all of us, and we all need it. We all need someone to, to, to pour into us and to help us to be sanctified. Yeah. So... I think we, we have the privilege to point people back to Scripture, offer a more compelling, robust explanation for the trials that people face and the way that sin affects us that's been revealed by God. Mm -hmm. um, and answers. And answers. Right? We're not looking to... Uh, the uh, Discipleship lasts until we go to heaven. But, but you're looking to get someone on their way, not in a two-year deal but but quickly right you know to diagnose kind of what you're feeling and then to say here's the solution that's right so 
let's we we've mentioned the four pillars, right, Jerry? Um, I think I'll go into the four pillars and just try and give maybe a, a propositional view of biblical counseling based on these four pillars. And and when I was studying, I just thought this was a helpful framework to to guard against bad views of counseling, but also to to have freedom in the counseling room to know that you're counseling biblically by operating inside of these four pillars. And I'll just give give sort of an overview here. The, f- the first one would be theology proper, would be main pillar number one, which is simply who is God. And the second pillar would be soteriology, uh, what is salvation or what is the cure for man's problems. Anytime we're, we're engaging in cures, we're also dealing with what's the problem. You know, the cure presupposes how we label the problems. Uh, thirdly, anthropology, which is who is man? You know, what are we as human people? Uh, that's a big part of uh, the sort of the upstream world of counseling that, that flavors everything that comes out in the how-to manuals and, and everything downstream. And then fourthly, epistemology. How do we know what is true? What is our guide for saying this is accurate information? How do we gauge that? And you, you can use this framework to compare all kinds of counseling theories. And, and every theory will, will have answers to these questions about uh, who is God, what, how do we know what's true, uh, what is man, and what is uh, our solution. So let me circle back to theology proper. Um, A.W. Tozer says, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart perceives God to be like. Jeremy Pierce says, how people respond to God is therefore the most important thing about them. And so, um, knowing who God is, who he has revealed himself to be in scripture, is of utmost importance in counseling. And that's what we're constantly wanting to do, is paint a right view of God, all of his attributes, all of his characteristics, and who he is. Um, you, you could sort of con- contrast this goal in counseling with somebody who might say, you know, we've got to figure out what father wounds you had as a child. And that's going to explain why you are the way you are as a young man today is because you had all of these father wounds as a, as, a, as a boy. And not that that's unimportant. That certainly influences us. Our parental relationships probably influence us more than, more than many other things, but um, we want to teach people who God is. If it's suffering in our past, we want to teach people about who God is in our suffering, that he's wise, that he's sovereign, and that he's good, and that he's allowed certain things to happen, and he has a plan for those things, mm-hmm. and really focus our attention on who God is. Um, and we also want to say that worship is central in counseling. All of our study of Scripture and all of the things about God revealed in Scripture should lead us to worship God. And we want to be doing that uh, when we're conversing with other people, informally and, and formally. And doctrine is like the, the clear lens by which we see God and the glory of Christ in Scripture. It's not necessarily an end in itself, but we want to see and understand who God is. And when we understand um, people, we can begin to understand their problems in light of what they don't understand about God. Mm. And you, you think about something like bitterness. And 
bitterness can take over a person's heart and mm. just all of a sudden you think about some way that you were slighted or wronged or somebody had a, a little bit of a harsh tone to you at work or you weren't given the respect that you wanted and it can lead to bitterness toward that person and all of a sudden it grows like a snowball growing, going down a mountain and all of a sudden three months later there's this disdain for this person for this one thing that they did and so when we understand God and this is totally unique to biblical counseling when we understand God and his forgiveness of us even though we've wronged him how many times far more times than that one person at work we understand his forgiveness to us we can now freely go and forgive other people any thoughts on that Jerry the importance of knowing God and that root of bitterness doesn't have to, it doesn't have to stay there. There's, there's those proverbs to overlook an insult, you know, the, the wisdom mm-hmm. in that, not being easily offended, not, uh, those are things that we're free to do now that we know the Lord Jesus. Right. So, we, you know, in counseling somebody who's bitter, I think a great place to go in Scripture is understanding God's forgiveness uh, for our sin. Mm-hmm. And I also think this is important because People are starving for God. People want meaning in their life. They're living for some kind of purpose. And it may be, uh, maybe they have a clear purpose in mind that's running far away from God. Maybe it's pleasure or this lifestyle of just licentious living, living for the feeling. Or maybe they're seeking. Maybe they're trying to find answers. And so uh, we want to we because we know and understand god we know who we are in light of that and what we're what we're here for and what we're designed for to really the chief end of man is to um how i forgot how the catechism goes or if i got to enjoy him forever yeah um I think we also need to talk about jerry bridges god is wise and good and and powerful and we can with so many counseling issues, uh, people get frustrated with God or angry at God mm. for some reason. And so I think it shows a lack of true trust in who God is, that he's all wise, that he's all powerful, and he's good. Yeah, it's a fantastic book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges. God's all loving, so he wants what's best for us. He's all knowing. He knows what's best for us. He's all powerful. So he's, uh, he's always, uh, his arm's never too short. He's always able to do its best for us. And so sneaking back a week or two, that's why we love the sovereignty of God. We love that he is providentially doing everything. God's in heaven and he does what he pleases. And so if it pleases God, we want to be sanctified to the degree that it pleases us as well. That's going to include some uncomfortable things the way we started, you know, half hour ago. Um, But those things, even if they don't seem fun or enjoyable or uh, or caused by our own sin or other people's sin, we trust that God's using every single event in the life of every single believer all day long to make us more like Jesus. And when we trust him on that, um, I think that's, that's got to be a tremendous encouragement in counseling, in being counseled or to counsel others. Yeah. Um. I don't think I'm going to get through the rest of these. I may just post some more of them. But um, number two, for sure, the, the second pillar is soteriology. What is salvation? This, of course, presupposes what our problem is and where we seek 
for cures. So every, every system or approach or, or methodology is going to have an understanding of the problem. Freud would say our problem is that we have a damaged psyche. Carl Rogers would say we have unrealized potential, unmet potential. Maslow might say we have unmet needs that we have to address. And B.F. Skinner, uh, very common in, in the educational world, says our environment need to change, and our, our environment needs to change for us to be able to act and uh, live the way we're supposed to live. So, you know, I think those theories now today, it's just sort of an eclectic approach. A lot of a lot of counselors will employ, you know, a combination of these theories and and others as well. Um, I think as biblical counselors, we want to ask what it is, what is it that people put their hope in? What is it that they truly hope in? And what is it that we're actually living for? And in the counseling room, I think people are coming to counseling because they have no hope. They are searching for hope. They're looking for hope of some sort. Maybe they have a hope that they've lived for their whole life that's let them down and it's led to all kinds of other sins or maybe a deep depression. And so we want to constantly be giving counselees hope and not saying that to have hope in themselves, but to hope in God who mm-hmm. can um, truly change lives and, and give us a purpose for why we live on this, on this world. We also want to ask what it is that people trust. Jerry Bridges said, trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. We also want to ask, what, what is a person's treasure? What is the thing that if they, they have gives them a sense of well-being? What do they think on at night? What is it that they're eagerly awaiting? What are their future expectations? What are all their pursuits geared towards? What are they giving their time and attention and money towards? Uh, what, is, what do they think on the first thing in the morning? Uh, what is the, the sun that the planet of our life revolves around? What is it that we... Uh, everything revolves around this one thing. Maybe it's that we would be seen as intelligent or um, maybe just a really likable person. Every situation we go into, we want to be liked by everybody. Or maybe it's credibility or esteem or status. You know, you can, the sun that our, our, our life revolves around could be a, a whole number of things. We want to engage on, on this level uh, with people. And wouldn't you say that as believers, Josh, we have the great joy and uh, to where everything revolves around Christ, where we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But every other system is going to be back to us. Uh, um, go back to your heart, believe in your heart, whatever we're supposed to do with our heart. Live for your heart. How, how does that go? I think you're hitting it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Follow, Follow it. That's the word I was looking for. And that's just not going to be, again, that's, there's nothing in there that's, we, we've got to exchange that for Christ. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, the transforming that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll post the other two, but can I mention this here before we go, Jerry? If questions that you have or something that didn't sit right or you want to talk through it more, I think we would love to hear them, and uh, I'll put our numbers in the group me. You can send us a text or, or a message on there. I, I, I would love to hear and, and talk more with you about things if you have questions or if something doesn't make sense 
and then we may um, address some of those even at the beginning of the next class. Yep, next week. Um, sadly, we've sure enjoyed this. We'll um, be the last one. We hope to maybe come back um, to another Sunday school down the road, like Josh said, to, to look at some more specific things. But um, we sure appreciate the way uh, you guys have um, come and, and engaged and, and talked through some, some pretty hard things or some things that might not always be uh, popular in our world. Absolutely. Sure. Yep. Josh, do you pray for us? Yes, I can. Father, what a privilege to, to know you and to be able to think about these things. Lord, I pray that we would be discerning. We wouldn't be take it, taken captive by hollow or deceptive philosophies. And Lord, in all of our lives, help Christ to be our supreme treasure. And may the, the meditation of our heart and the, the speech on our lips be honoring to you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.